0: Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So in Washington, D.C., there's a building known as the NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology. It looks like this. It's actually part of a complex. This facility is responsible for storing perfect samples of weights and measurements. Um, they have what are called prototypes, like weights of pounds, ounces, kilograms, kilograms. Also have measuring rods for feet, yards, metric meters. Here's a picture of one of them. This is the, known as prototype 27. It's a meter long, reinforced bar of platinum alloy, exactly 10% iridium, exactly one meter long. Now, exactly one meter long, if it's cooled down to exactly zero degrees Celsius at sea level, 45 degrees north latitude, then you will have exactly one meter from tip to tip. Guaranteed. I said this is prototype 27, it's stamped like that, I got a close up of that, this is prototype 27, uh, because the original one is in Paris, we'll talk about how we got the meter later on, but it's held in Paris at the International Bureau of Weights and Measures, who knew, right? Now, we as Christians, why do I show you this trivia stuff? Just because it's fun, but we as Christians have our own measuring rod that never changes, we call it the Bible. And the Bible has a couple of its own credibility statements that defines what it is and how it should work in our lives. My favorite, your laugh here, my favorite this morning anyway for this sentence right here is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Look at this. It says, all scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And then it gives us the why right after that, verse 17, so that... The servant of God may be fully equipped for every good work. That fully equipped means to be fitted. Fitted not only for uh, what God wants us to do, but when he wants to do it. Perfectly fitted for this moment. So this is God's measuring rod. By the way, no message is complete without mentioning 2 Timothy 3.16. It's that important in our lives and in in what we do. It says, Scripture is God-breathed. Verse 16 says, it's God-breathed. Literally meaning from the lungs of God. just like there's breath coming out of my mouth as I'm speaking, that's what it's talking about. that breath that's coming out as God is dictating His message to people, that he wants how He wants it written down, literally from His in, inward parts, um, given to God, given by God to man. Um, so what does this measuring rod um, do for us? Well', look at that list of stuff. First of all, it teaches us, right Literally gives us correct information. The Bible is truthful. It gives us correct information. Also rebukes us, right? Repairs me when uh, I have this wrong way of thinking or I'm going down the wrong path. And corrects me in uh, correcting character flaws. Some of us need more help there than others, right? Trains me in righteousness. Uh, literally ready to make the right decision in life. Make the right decision, make the right choices in life. Okay, so now we're, uh, we're halfway through October, Right? And we're heading right for Reformation Sunday. I mentioned it earlier um, this morning. I've got a big day planned for us on Reformation Sunday. Um, so we're going to be talking, of course, celebrating the fact and the day that Martin Luther um, nailed those 95 theses to the door at, at, at Wittenberg um, uh, Cathedral, the Cathedral of Wittenberg Castle. Uh, for all to read, or anybody that could read Latin, anyway, they could all read those. And Luther used verses like 2 Timothy 3.16 as his uh, kind of thesis statement for these theses that, that he had written. And we'll, again, we'll be digging into that a little bit further on, on Reformation Sunday. But I'll also be understanding Luther's main point. Luther's main point was to bring the church back to God. That's why he did what he did, to bring the church back back to God, back to God, back to the Bible. Now, if you have to bring somebody back to something, obviously, if they've gone the wrong way and they've gone down the wrong path, we're going to talk about how that happened um, in a second. But um, Luther's idea was to bring people back to the idea, bring God back to being the central theme of the Bible, bringing God back to being the central theme of the Bible and being Christ the central purpose of the Bible. Look at God as a central theme. We look at Christ as a central purpose of the Bible. Back to remembering, he, Luther said, back to remembering that God wrote these words to us. These aren't our ideas, these are God's words that he has written to us. Um, another credibility statement that, um, that the, how the Bible defines itself, I'm going to get to that in a second too. Second Peter uh, 1, 19-21 um, says this, We also have the prophetic message uh, as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place. I just want to pause there for a second. Um, how do we pay attention to a light in a dark place? You know, that sounds kind of crazy, right? We don't really pay attention to a light in a dark place. The light just does what it does, right? And we just enter into it. That's how he says, that's how the word of God should be to us that we just exist in it, just the same way as we exist in this light. If, if the light is on, down uh, what was previously a dark stairway, you can't ignore the light. Yeah, okay, maybe you can close your eyes, and if you're in my youth group, you'd say something like that, but you can't ignore the light. The light is doing what it's doing, and it's there for your purpose and for your benefit, and there's really no getting around what that light is doing. That's how the word should be in our lives, as if you pay attention it's the same as you pay attention to a light. We don't think about paying attention to a light. It just does what it does. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, verse 20, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. Right? This is God's ideas. These are God's words that are coming down. Nobody wrote down their own ideas. They wrote down what God wanted them to do. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, right? That prophet's own interpretation means application, means explanation. It didn't come from them, it came from God. So, getting back to the point, what Luther noticed, when Luther was noticing, was that the church was more focused on, on the content that people had written about the Bible rather than the words that God gave us in the Bible. They were paying more attention to the stuff that was written about the Bible rather than God's words that are in the Bible. He said, we've got to get back to the Bible. We've got to get back to that word alone. That's where he comes up with that's one of his five solas. God's word alone, not people's words, not ideas over there. No, we've got to get back to the straight and narrow. We've got to use that rod to measure what we're talking about and get back to um, the exact things that God is talking about. Because when we get right down to it, it's rather easy and, and common for us to miss the main point or the central theme of what's going on around us. And it happens um, everywhere in our lives because we get hung up on details, we get hung up on, on other aspects of what's going on, and we just kind of forget about what's going on. Like uh, even, you know, discussions, serious discussions, it happens in, in classes, in public or private schools, it happens in universities, it happens in churches, it happens in seminaries. Everywhere we're talking about a topic, it's easy to get off the center of that topic. Um I used to coach people um when I was in the military about how to stay on task, um, because you're going to be facing maybe um, a room of people that don't agree with you, or you're trying to argue a point, you're trying to get something across, I told them to always put your your main ideas, your main theme, at the top of that legal pad. That way when we get going down in all these rabbit holes and all this other stuff, you can always come back to the main point. You can always come back to the main idea. And Luther's main idea about the Bible is this is coming from God, and we should really be paying attention to that, and not all the noise and not all the distractions that can come in with it. So that's what we're talking about here, because I I say it all the time, it's easy to get caught up in the trivia, and I ask you as I'm talking about these things to not get caught up in the trivia, to stay on the main point, to stay with the main idea and how it affects our lives, because it's easy, even when that main point is right in front of you, it's easy to miss the main idea of what what happened, Um, and that happens a lot in the Bible. There's a lot of examples of this happening in the bible especially when it comes to jesus and his life and his ministry i want to show you a section of john um, chapter 5 of what happened so this is verse 8 here in john chapter 5 verse 8 it says and i'll I'll back this up i'll explain it as soon as we get through it It says jesus said to him um, get up pick up your mat and walk At once the man was cured he picked up his mat and he walked oh and by the way the day in which this took place was the sabbath day was a sabbath day okay so a little background here, Jesus heals this man who's been sitting next to a pool. He's crippled, he's been sitting next to a pool for like 40 years, 39, 40 years, um, waiting to be healed. Jesus comes along and he basically asks the question that's so obvious, so funny to even ask it, he says, do you want to be healed? And the dude's like, why do you think I'm sitting here? And Jesus said, well, get up and walk, take up your pallet and, and go on. So the Pharisees see him carrying this pallet and, and they say, you can't carry that on the Sabbath day, you can't work on the Sabbath day. Now, back this up just a little bit. Um, The Pharisees were so um, adamant about working on the Sabbath day, Um, we see a lot of that throughout the Bible, Um, they literally thought that if people worked on the Sabbath day, that it was keeping the Messiah from coming to the world. So our, our not obeying that commandment, of, especially of this working on the Sabbath day, was keeping the Messiah from coming into the world. That's why they, were so, uh, why they harped on it so much. And I'm not saying it makes any sense, but that's why they harped on it so much. That's why they had so many rules about what you could and what you couldn't do, how far you, could, how far you could walk, how much weight you could carry, things like that. That's what they really thought. So now, they know that Jesus healed this guy on the Sabbath day. They said, that's a definition of work. So you worked on the Sabbath day. In verse uh, 16... It says, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath day... Uh, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him, right? They came after him because of those, uh, because of those reasons. And it's, again, it's easy for us to miss this main point. The Pharisees missed the main point here. It's not that Jesus worked on the Sabbath day. It's that Jesus healed this guy who was crippled for 40 years and all Jesus said was just get up. Let's go. Let's get, get started. The Pharisees just blew past the main point and they went into this other part about the man made written rules that said, well, you can't do this, that, or the other on the Sabbath day. God just said rest on the Sabbath day. He didn't give us a long list of things you can't do and that was all the stuff that we kind of made up i just should say we that's the stuff that they made up again for the reasons that i pointed out a second ago and that's what they that's what they went to that's what they clung to that became their main point rather than the fact that jesus was healing these people and again we can get wrapped up in trivial things we can forget the main point we get caught up in arguments about the bible um, and things that are going on in the bible and things like that so um, let's take a moment like, like Luther did, um, and I just want to do a couple of, of ser- uh, sermon ideas or uh, message ideas um, leading up to Reformation Sunday, this word alone. So I'm going to talk about uh, what Luther did to clear up some confusion that was happening in his day and things that are happening in our day, because we, so we can relate to this um, just the same way that people did in Luther's day. First thing I want to talk about, the first thing I want to tackle is the origins of the Bible, um, and more specifically maybe the origins of Christianity. Um, and we actually, I think, have a lot more hurdles to jump over than Luther did back in those days about, about this, the origins of the Bible, um, and, and try to answer the simple question of where did Christianity start? You know, where did it come from, and how did we get the ideas that, that we do? Well, that's why I made such a big deal of the Apostles' Creed a second ago, because that's where we get these ideas, right? We get the ideas from, from this Bible. But some people will tell, try to tell you that, that Christianity started from a, a political background, um, not politics like we have them um, right now, but more of the, for the church, what the church, the church leaders, the pope and people were trying to do, and how they were trying to get their agendas uh, pushed through, and, and how they were doing that. Um, one, you know, the, I was going to say media, but that's not a good way to say it, but some of the things, the books that have been written, um, movies that have come out have really clouded um, this issue. Where did Christianity come from, and what are the origins of the Bible um, about 20 years ago, a book came out called The Da Vinci Code. Sometimes I show pictures of it, but I don't even want to bother with this one. Um, if you haven't read it, don't bother. I'm just going to save you a little bit of time here. Um, there's a couple of, of, of chapters, there's a couple of ideas that 20 years ago and 15 years ago, I had to do a lot of undoing with some of these ideas. Um, one in particular that I spent a lot of time undoing was a section that claims it talks about the Council of Nicaea. Uh, the Council of Nicaea took place in 325 um, A.D. The Emperor was Constantine. We had just, he had just adopted uh, Christianity and just wanted some ideas to be, to be laid down. But in the, in the book, of uh, in the Da Vinci Code um, idea, um, the idea was that all of those ideas, all the Christian ideas came from that council, didn't come from the Bible. That's what the premise was. Um, but that's not what happened. Um, that and again, that that happens all too too often. They, like the idea is that Jesus is the Son of God. They said came from the Council of Nicaea, that comes straight from the Bible. So I get people asking me questions about that all the time, about uh, a movie that they watched or a book that they read, and then they come with the Bible and they say, well, you know, where did they get that? And I'm like, well, they it's we call it artistic license, but I think we're a little nice when we say that, but. Even like the Ten Commandments take us down the wrong path a couple of times. I'm not saying it's a, it's a bad movie or something like that, but it's just not biblically straight on, on all the ideas. It's not using, again, this measuring rod um, that, we, that we have in our hands, that everything that we do has to come from that. Just to close that loop about the, uh, the Da Vinci Code and the Council of Nicaea. So 325, all of the books in the New Testament, let's talk New Testament for a second, all the books in the New Testament were written before the year 100 A.D., probably more like 90 A.D., um, and now while, while we don't have the original documents, we don't have the original gospel letters, we don't have the original letters from Paul, uh, we've got copies that are pretty close to that, like within 30 years of the original. Um, and that's, I, I thought about going on this a little bit um, farther, but I think I'm just going to push that down the road a little bit and talk about that maybe in a series about um, origins of the Bible and a little bit more of uh, the credibility of the Bible So we had these books. Uh, The Council of Nicaea, the people that were at that council, were reading the New Testament letters for some 300 years, 250, 300 years. So they had a lot of time to kind of put them together. And so what Constantine wanted that council to do um, was to summarize and standardize our beliefs because there are a lot of churches around and we wanted some uh, some central ideas that we all could agree on and that we all knew that this is the way it's going to be taught and this is what the Bible says about different things. So... Again, when reading that Bible, um, we'll talk more about that um, in a series down the road. So, all right, so Luther was helping clear up the origins of the Bible, the origins of Christianity. He also was tackling a tough topic that we have to deal with today as well, um, the so-called changes um, in the Bible. Okay, I'm going to start where we are today with where we are today on this. Um, The truth of the matter is people will tell you that that Bible that you have in your hand is a copy of 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 a copy, right? Right? And that is 100% completely false. That's not what we have in our hands here. Um, what we have in our hands here, um, you, know, or, you know, when people tell you that, they also talk about the game of telephone. Where, you know, where you, we still play that in our youth groups. So, you know, I'll write down a, a simple five-word message, show it to the first person. By the time we get to the third person, it's pretty much shot. And by the time you get to the fifth person, there's no message left at all. But, but that's not the case with the Bible. That's not what we have in the, with the Bible in our hands. Um, in, now there's a lot of English translations um, out there and I use several of them when we're talking here and I usually um, footnote and let you know which one we're looking at but they all go back to the original, in the Old Testament they go back to the original Hebrew or they go back in the New Testament to the original Greek so we, we have the original stuff that we can go back and we can say you know, either that is working or that it's not working you either keep it or, or we've got to get rid of this one or you've made a mistake, something like that Luther had a much more difficult task with it, though. He had to deal with what was called the Latin Vulgate. Okay, real hist- uh, close, uh, quick on a history um, lesson. So um, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and everything was going fine, but Hebrew um, started to fall away as a language. It started to be an archaic language. It started to be a language that only scholars really spoke. Okay, so Greek was the common language now at this time. This is about 300 A.D., so 300, or B.C., rather, 300 years before Jesus was born. So they took the Hebrew and they translated it. Those Hebrew, Greek-speaking people translated it into what's called the Septuagint. So that's the Old Testament in Greek, and it's pretty tight. I mean, there's not really any discrepancies. There's not really any debating about it because these dudes who were doing it, you know, living in those times, living in those languages were the ones doing it. Solid. Okay, now... So then after Jesus, uh, right after the Council of Nicaea, actually about 382, um, Latin was now the language of scholars. So they wanted to translate everything from the Bible into the Latin. They called it the Vulgate. Okay, now this is what Luther was dealing with. Now that's 382 AD. Luther is 1,200 years after that, but here we are with the Vulgate. Now the the Latin Vulgate, the reason I bring that up and the reason I talk about it is, wow, it's a big bug. The reason I talk about it is because um, there were Uh, We call them heirs, but we really think that Luther said that um, these guys are up to some shenanigans. And the way he found that, the way he looked at that is he went back to the original Greek. He went back to the original Hebrew, some with the Septuagint, but he really went back to the Hebrew. And he said, you know, we're making this sound like what we want to teach rather than teaching what this really is all about. So that, that's part of the problem that he really got up because he was really taking on um, the establishment with that. Now, having said that, now, we try to give him a break and say, oh, those are just some typos, but you know, Luther said, no, this is intentional. They're really trying to change the way we're thinking and the way we're believing and the, way we're, we're, the things that we're teaching. So I looked at that, and then I thought, you know, um, there have been some, some errors, some typos in the Bible in the past. I want to share a couple of them with you real quick. 1810 translation had a typo that said, if any, This is Jesus talking. If any man come to me and hate not his own wife rather than his own life, just one little letter. I mean, so that's a typo. We threw that one out. 1716, in Ireland, we are commanded to sin on more rather than sin no more. So we just flipped a couple letters around. All right, let me fix that one too. My favorite one, and I'm gonna, I know I'm going to pay for this one later because Barbara's sitting right over there. 1631 version said, Thou shalt commit adultery. I'm just following orders, honey. I'm sorry. I don't know. Those are not errors in the Bible. Those are typos. We caught them very quickly, and most of them were destroyed on the spot. People said, oh, man, we've got to start all over. 1631, man, books are hard to come by. Can you imagine just destroying all those copies because, you know, we made a typo, and then they fixed it after that. Okay, number three. Keep going here. Um, contradictions in the Bible. All right. Um, in a word, nonexistent. Um just take the Gospels for a moment. I mean, we could talk about the whole Bible. Just take the Gospels for a second. We've got four Gospels. We've got three of them that are pretty tight together, telling many of the same historical accounts and telling them from different uh, perspectives, different ideas. Um, there's one in particular that gets thrown at us a lot, but it doesn't make any sense. There's uh, Jesus heals two blind men. It's in three of the Gospels. Two of the Gospel writers only mention one, of the per- one person, and one of them names that person. The other Gospel writer says that there's two people that he healed. Well, is that a contradiction? Well, no, it's just two different people telling the same story, or three different people telling the same story from a different perspective. You know, I had a good Packer story that I wanted to tell in a second, but Reuben Reuben was at the ice bowl. I mean, you, yeah, I know, you're going to want to shake his hand later. I had him sign some stuff for me. I like, oh, you're at the ice bowl. If Reuben wrote down his experience at the ice bowl and then had somebody else, by the way, wasn't there some vandalism, don't you, is there some, there's some charges up on you about some sign of vandalism thing? The Statue of Limitations is passed, I'm sure, don't worry about it, I won't, we won't report you. But if Reuben wrote down his experience um, at the ice bowl, it may or may not include Bart Starr, or it may or may not include um, Jerry Kramer, Right? But somebody else writing down the same idea at the same game would have a whole different idea of what happened at that game. Does that mean that these two are lying or that one of them is not telling them the truth? No, it's just two different ideas of the same thing that happened, of the same experience. But people experience, excuse me, experience things differently, and they look at things differently. So when we look at, at, the, at the Bible... And we say, well, there's a contradiction because this guy um, said there were two people and this guy said there was one person and this guy named one of them and this guy didn't name one of them. Well, uh, that just doesn't make any sense. I say to people all the time, if that's your idea of a, con- of a contradiction, then I say go back and-, and try again. Come back with something real, something we can sink our teeth into, something that actually um, is, is um, you know, analytically uh, a contradiction. Now, okay, so... Ice bowl, things like that don't really matter. You know, other stories like that don't really matter. But the words of God do matter, right? That's why they go after them. The words and the message of the Bible come from God. You know, as quick review here. Um, he breathed out those words to the people that he had write them down. Um, it's far more accurately historical, historically accurate document um, than anything known to mankind. We can back this up without uh, sh- even a shadow of a doubt. And so now that we don't miss the point of the Bible, right? We've been talking about some trivia things, some fun dates and things like that, and some ideas that have gone on. Because again, sometimes we can get caught up, especially me, I can get caught up in an academic study and I can go around in a circle. But um, the facts that are presented all, all point to one thing. That's what I want to talk about next is the purpose of the Bible. And that's what Luther was talking about, right? God gave us these words so that we could know him more, we could trust him more, we could put our faith in him more, not anything else, not people, not money, um, not objects, not jobs, not things like that. to put our faith and put our trust in him, whatever we're doing. Um, so there's another verse here that I want to demonstrate for you right here. Um, Colossians 3.16, the first part of that verse, says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ Dwell in you richly. Okay, so I've got a couple of things up here. I've got two glasses. The only difference is I put a tea bag in one of them. No, it's not a magic trick, so don't be disappointed. Like, oh, I saw the tea bag, man. i got a jug of hot water here. It's even steaming. All right, so in this one, just to remind us who we are and how we look without God's word, I'm going to pour this hot water into this glass. Into this glass. I'm going to pour pour some more hot water. I'm going to regret that in a second. So what does it mean to have Christ, the word of Christ, the word of God, that's why I picked this version, by the way, because it says the word of Christ, dwelling richly in us? Well, it means this. It means that it changes us. I mean, immediately when that water hit that teabag, it started changing, right? It's not the same anymore. It's richly dwelling in your... Um, we have here what we would be without the word of God in our lives, or when Jesus was talking about um, the, where a different seed fell on different places, some of it didn't take any effect at all, right? I just poured hot water in a glass, right? It didn't, but it didn't make any effect at all. Here, though, when we have God's Word living in us, dwelling within us richly, we have something else going on. We have something completely changed, something completely different, right? It looks completely different. If you're standing up here, it smells completely different. And you know what? It's going to taste completely different. It's going to be done from the inside out, right? It's, there's no doubt about it. There's no you know there's no comparison in these two. You wouldn't mistake one for the other, right? And going back and forth. It gives us literally a new identity when we put God's word in us. And look at the first word in that verse. It says, let. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In other words, don't prevent it from being dwelling in you richly. Right? Don't run from it. Don't go do other things. Don't look for it in other places. Let God's word, let Christ's word work in you and dwell in you richly to make you different, again, from the inside out. Because when we start living our lives like God intended it, things start changing. And when we start changing, things out there start changing. Like I said earlier, you know, we complain about the world. We complain about God not being out in the world. Well, what are we doing about it? No, and the first step is to let that word dwell in you richly so then when we go out into the world, it starts dwelling in the world richly. Again, we call this, this is just a cup of hot water, right? Useful for not a whole lot, right? But now, all of a sudden, look at this. When we have God's word in us, all of a sudden it changes us again from the inside out. If we're the glass, you know, that's God's word that's living inside of us. And the way God does this The way God changes us from the inside out, the way God dwells in us richly is through his Son. right? Through his Son. When we put our faith in Christ, when we put our faith in Jesus, his Son, he brings us, God brings us to eternal life. Eternal life, everlasting life with him. And he does that through his word. Those are the promises that he makes to us in his word. I want to read you, uh, leave you with Romans 10, 17. This is a big verse for Luther. This is what he read, and he said, holy cow, we've got to start looking at things differently. Faith comes from hearing the message. What message? The message that's heard is the message about Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let God change you from the inside out. Don't settle for being this. God says, I want you to be this. And I'm going to do it through my word. And he says, when you let me into your heart, when you let me into your life, things are going to look completely different and we're not going back to what we used to be. Amen? Would you please stand with me? And let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for gathering us here together this morning by your Holy Spirit to listen to your words, to experience your presence, uh, to be able to worship you, to be able to praise you in a group of like-minded people that are uh, all about who you are and how you work in our lives. I said earlier about sacraments, that you give them to us as a promise about who you are, what you've done in our lives, and what you promise to keep on doing in our lives. So now we already experienced and witnessed your baptism into, the, into your kingdom and into your world and into your life, and we thank you now for the, the sacrament of, of Holy Communion that is set as a reminder that you will come again to come for us, to not leave us where we are, but to make a difference in our lives and to bring us to where you are. So when we say those words, do this in remembrance of me, Lord, I ask that you come back to our memories and our minds about who you are and what you've done in our lives. Because it says, in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread.